Section three of Autobiography of Phineas Pett by Phineas Pett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section three. Phineas Pett. From the care that had been taken to provide for his education, and from the fact that it was only at the instant persuasion of his mother that he was contented to be apprenticed as a shipwright, it may be inferred that Phineas had been destined for the church or the law and that peter pett did not propose that his son should follow in his own footsteps the peculiarity of the name chosen for him which no doubt refers not to the disobedient son of eli but to phineas the son of eleazar the son of aaron the priest who received the covenant of an everlasting priesthood gives rise to the surmise that his parents had intended him for the church but whatever the intention may have been, it was certainly abandoned on the death of his father. Phineas does not seem to have profited greatly from his studies at Cambridge. He was hardly a master of English. Possibly he had a good knowledge of Latin, for the influence of the Latin idiom is to be seen in almost all his periods. But the fact that he had subsequently to practice ciphering in the evenings does not imply any great acquirements in mathematics even of the very elementary forms which at that period were sufficient for the solution of the few problems arising in connection with the design of ships nevertheless he received the degree of bachelor of arts in fifteen ninety two and that of master in fifteen ninety five if the statement that he spent the two years of his apprenticeship to chapman to very little purpose is to be accepted literally it would seem that the misfortunes that subsequently befell him must have aroused latent energies and filled him with determination to master the details of his future profession when he returned to england in fifteen ninety four his voyage to the levant and subsequent employment as an ordinary workman under his brother joseph no doubt gave him a practical acquaintance with ships that enabled him to profit greatly by the instruction of matthew baker although apparently this only extended over the winter of fifteen ninety five to six Pett's confession that it was from Baker that he received his greatest lights, written as it must have been after he had found Baker an envious enemy, and an old adversary to my name and family, indicates how great that assistance was. This is borne out by a letter which he wrote to Baker in April 1603, in order to deprecate the old man's wrath, which had been aroused when Phineas, then assistant master shipwright at Chatham, commenced work on the answer the letter was partially destroyed by the fire which damaged the cottonian library in seventeen thirty one but fortunately pepys had copied it in his miscellanea sir my duty remembered unto you it is so that i received a message from you by richard merritt the purveyor concerning the answer who gave me to understand from you that you were informed i meant to break up the ship and to lengthen and that i should no further proceed till i received further order from you indeed the ship was heaved up by general consent both of my lord some of the principal officers and two of the master shipwrights which were here present at the time she was begun to be hauled up no determination being resolved upon that should be done unto her for which cause other haste of businesses also being some hindrance she hath lain still ever since till now that it pleased sir henry palmer to command she should be blocked and searched 
within board only and so let alone partly because our men wanting other stuff to perfect other businesses had little else to do as also to the intent she might be made ready to be the better viewed and surveyed lying upright being somewhat also easier for the ship this is now done but i ensure you there was no intent or other purpose to proceed in anything upon her any further till the master shipwrights especially yourself who built her had first surveyed her and under your hands set down what should be done unto her and therefore good mr baker do not give so much credit to those that out of their malice do advertise you untruth concerning either this or any other matter for it is supposed by whom this hath been done and he is generally thought to be no other than an ambidexter or rather a flat sheet being so far off from either procuring credit to himself by due execution of his place and discharge of his duty that like aesop's dog he doth malice any other that is willing to give him precedent of better course than all men can sufficiently in this place report himself to follow and for myself it is so sure from me to understand anything that you should think any ways prejudicial unto you or to any of your works that you shall always rather find me dutiful as a servant to follow your directions and instructions in any of these businesses than arrogant as a prescriber or corrector of anything done by you whose ever memorable works i set before me as a notable precedent and pattern to direct me in any work that i do at any time undertake and you yourself can say setting private jars aside which i hope are all now at a final end but that i ever both reverenced you for your years and admired you for your art in the which i know to speak without flattery no artist in christendom of our profession able in any respect to come near you therefore good mr baker carry but that loving mind towards me you shall find my loving duty to you to deserve who you shall find always as ready to do you any service either in this place or any other as any servant of yours whatsoever among whose rank i account myself one of the most unworthiest for although i served no years in your service yet i must ever acknowledge whatever i have any art if i have any it came only from you thus hoping this shall suffice to give you satisfaction in this behalf i humbly take my leave ever resting ready to do you service your servant phineas pett chatham this tenth of april sixteen o three to the worshipful and my loving friend mr matthew baker one of his majesty's master shipwrights given this at woolwich or elsewhere this expression of opinion upon baker's capacity was evidently quite genuine for many years after when the old man was dead and there was nothing to be feared from his enmity phineas wrote of him as the most famous artist of his time phineas did not rely on his professional skill alone to gain him preferment when in his brother joseph's employment he laid out his earnings in clothing himself in very good fashion always endeavouring to keep company with men of good rank far better than myself by means of a friend thus gained he obtained an introduction to the lord admiral which was the very first beginning of his rising no doubt nottingham had known his father and it is certain that he was well acquainted with his brother peter 
it is probably to this that the extraordinary respect that the later favours of the admiral were due these favours brought upon him the malicious envy of master shipwrights who were no doubt aggrieved at seeing employment that might have provided them or their friends with pickings handed to a newcomer the post of purveyor of timber was not without its perquisites and pett's thankfulness that nothing could be proved against him when the accounts of his doings in suffolk and norfolk were scrutinized indicates that his labours had not been without some profit to himself indeed his association with trevor who became an able disciple of the arch thief mansell leads one to suspect that falk greville's action in wrongfully cutting off twenty pounds was not the high-handed injustice that phineas would have one believe it is true that mr oppenheim dates the administrative degeneracy of the navy office from greville's treasurership but it is probable that this arose from greville's incapacity to exercise the strict control which had characterized his predecessor hawkins and not from want of integrity three years later phineas affirms that greville continued his heavy enemy because the treasurer could not win him to such conditions as he laboured me in against the surveyor a state of affairs that seems to indicate a half-hearted attempt at reform on greville's part rather than any underhand conspiracy in an anonymous account of the quarrel at chatham in sixteen o two preserved in Peats's miscellanea written evidently by george collins the principal informer and stirrer in this business it is stated that the writer told sir henry palmer that pett quote, had sold away the repulse's foretopmast and that through his negligence the crane was bilged in the dock which cost the queen a hundred pounds whereupon palmer called him a rogue and asked him if he ever stole anything and then struck him with a cudgel quote, and no wonder though sir henry took his part so much for in six weeks after he had great mast soared out into boards at the queen's charge a long-boat full and towed down to whitechapel by boatswain by boatswain gale or his man at a ketch's stern at the term after i served phineas pett upon a battery and sir john and sir henry procured my lord admiral's warrant to send me to marshalsea but that i paid well for it in mr pope's house i had gone thither and so was forced to agree with phineas and to enter into bond never to follow suit against him neither for the king nor yet for myself the writer then goes on to give instances of pett's misappropriations of materials and labour four tons of elm timber sawn into boards fifty deals from the storehouse fifty small spars two four-inch planks to make a bridge into his meadow labour for two or three days a sluice made in the meadow at a cost of three pounds or four pounds two or three tons of oak timber sawn into posts to hang clothes on and painted at the queen's cost although the writer has an obvious grievance against pet there seems no reason to doubt the substantial accuracy of the charges made one of the gravest indictments subsequently brought by the commission of inquiry of sixteen o eight to sixteen o nine against phineas was that relating to the ship which he had laid down in david duck's private yard at gillingham in sixteen o four when both he and duck were shipwrights at chatham from the account of it presented by phineas it might be supposed that the charge related merely to the sale of ordnance and ammunition to the spaniards but the malpractices alleged 
went much further than that and although pett was cleared by the king an examination of the evidence produced before the commission leads to the conclusion that those scandalous and false informations might have led to very unpleasant results if the king had not been biased in his favour the story as made out from the existing documents is briefly as follows the ship a small one of about a hundred and sixty tons had been built largely of timber delivered for the king's use at chatham and with articles borrowed out of the store under warrant of the principal officers two of whom mansell and trevor subsequently had shares in her she was rigged with the rigging of the foresight which for bare twelve pounds only he bought out of her at much less than the value by the favour of the surveyor trevor and the treasurer mansell so that she was sailed with the king's sails and rigged with the king's tackling when she set sail for spain in sixteen o five under colour of a transporter of my lord admiral's provisions she was furnished out of the king's store with cables anchors flags pitch and other stores and provisions including six hundred weight of biscuit she also drew one hundred and twenty bolts of canvas for the use of the fleet part of which was sold by pett's brother and for the whole of which phineas acknowledged himself responsible although taken up as a transport and paid wages and tonnage on a false rating of three hundred tons about twice her capacity she was entered in the customs as a merchantman bound for san lucar and carried sixty tons of lead for a merchant of london named alabaster for which sixty pounds was received as freight at lisbon pets sold a demi culverin of brass captured at cadiz in fifteen ninety six with ammunition and a quantity of bread biscuit and peas belonging to the fleet for which he received three hundred pounds which he sent by the way of exchange to trevor and mansell then at valladolid with nottingham who had gone there to ratify the peace recently concluded between the two countries altogether the voyage of this ship cost the king eight hundred pounds or a thousand pounds as appeareth by the accounts for little or no service done to all as regards the money sent to valladolid it is probable that this was used in paying some of the expense of the embassy and that this proceeding had the sanction of nottingham but pett's answers before the commission to some of the other charges as given in the signed deposition of twelfth of may sixteen o eight seem rather weak he stated that the riggings of the foresight were found to be so ill that they stood him in little or no stead that the accounts for the provisions were delivered to sir john trevor and no copies had been kept and by a convenient lapse of memory he could not say what persons or stuff were landed at the groin nor what burden the ship was accounted for to the king when asked by captain morgan to set him down on the east side of the groin he was alleged to have said that he could not adventure the ship by his directions so that she was no part of the fleet for that she was no part of the fleet in reply to which allegation he swore that to the best of his recollection no such words were ever used it appears from the evidence that sir richard levison had refused to allow the ship as one of the fleet but he had died shortly after the return to england and after his death mansell and trevor assuming full power into their own hands had reversed the decision one reason given by pett for visiting ports other than that to which the fleet had gone is of interest 
he told the commission that he had been informed by trevor and mansell that the biscuit would not be needed for the fleet by reason of the short voyage my lord admiral had into spain and he was to go to lisbon or san lucar to sell it and that they reported as from my lord admiral that because this deponent was a shipwright he might in the harbours where he should put in take view of the spanish ships and galleys and of the manner of their building with a ship so cheaply built and rigged and employed on such favourable terms it could not have been difficult to make a handsome profit and it is little wonder that pett calls her a lucky ship when he tells of her sale in sixteen twelve the corruption in the administration of the navy which had begun to appear in the last years of elizabeth's reign had by sixteen o eight reached such height that james was at length forced to take some steps in regard to it the knowledge that spain was actively engaged in setting her navy in order no doubt quickened the king into action and provided a motive powerful enough to sweep aside for the time the obstruction of the senile nottingham and his jackal mansell at first it had been intended that nottingham should head the commission and letters patent were passed on first of april sixteen o eight in which his name appears first northampton coming second but for some reason this was altered and on the thirtieth of april a commission under the great seal was issued to henry howard earl of northampton then lord privy seal and lord warden of the cinque ports charles howard earl of nottingham the lord high admiral and thirteen others of whom sir robert cotton the famous antiquary was the most active northampton who was nottingham's cousin seems to have been the leader of the reform party and although he is persistently vilified by pett there is little doubt that he was actuated by a more or less sincere desire sharpened possibly by mutual antagonism between the offices of lord warden and lord high admiral to reform the many existing abuses what all these abuses were would take too long in telling but they were sufficient to justify and more than justify the vigorous language of the patent which speaks of the quote, very great and intolerable abuses deceits frauds corruptions negligences misdemeanours and offences that have been and daily are perpetrated committed and done against the continual admonitions and directions of you our high admiral by other the officers of and concerning our navy royal and by the clerks of the prick and check and divers other inferior offices ministers soldiers mariners and others serving working or labouring in and about our said navy the patent then proceeds to give instructions for the examination of all officials who have been connected with the navy since fifteen ninety eight and the investigation of their accounts Quote, minding that the said intolerable abuses frauds misdemeanours and offences shall forthwith be inquired of the offenders therein condignly punished and also to provide a speedy reform of the same for the time to come possibly at the time james really intended to reform the administration nottingham kept out of the way and his subordinates had an unpleasant time while they were examined upon their misdeeds but in the end james's fear of spain having passed away he with his usual weakness let the offenders off with a lecture the commission commenced to sit in may sixteen o eight and sat for a little over a year ending with the proceedings before the king recorded on pages sixty eight to sixty nine below 
During this period, 161 witnesses were examined, and their signed depositions taken. These are preserved among the manuscripts of Sir Robert Cotton, who acted as the secretary. They were analysed by Cotton, who drew up a lengthy report, in which various abuses are set forth, and proposals made for their remedy. The latter, as might be expected, were duly ignored by the king. Among the offenders cited by name, Pett appears as one of the chief, and although the present occasion is not convenient for a general examination of the report and evidence, some mention must be made of the matters in which Pett is directly charged with wrongdoing. The first point made against him is that while he was keeper of the timber store at Chatham, he had failed to reject bad timber and plank brought in by one of the purveyors. His answer to this was that Sir Henry Palmer had been so quick with him for some of these exceptions, as he would complain no more, though the purveyors brought in faggot sticks. He is next charged with certain malpractices in connection with the resistance, and other charges on this account are brought against him further on. These have already been referred to. In a general charge against the master shipwrights that, for reasons of private gain, ships were repaired when they were not worth the labour nor the charges bestowed on them, the case of the victory is cited as an example. Quote, Thus did the victory for transportation, docking, and breaking up stand the king in four or five hundred pounds, and yet no one part of her at this day is serviceable to any use about the building of a new, as was pretended for a colour. To conclude, though we set her at a rate of two hundred pounds, yet it had been better absolutely for the king to have given her away to the poor than to have been put to the charge of bringing her from Chatham to Woolwich, no other use having been made of her than to furnish Phineas Pett, that was the only author of her preservation, with the fuel for the diet of those carpenters which he victualled. In complaining that estimates for repair were made blindfold, with the result that money was spent upon old ships more than sufficient to have built new ones, the illustration is again drawn from Pett's proceedings. Quote, An instance of this art may be drawn from the king's ship now called the Anne Royal, whose estimate being first set down by the master shipwrights at £3,576, which sum would have built another by the judgment of those that made the estimate, newly from the stocks of equal burthen, doth upon her finishing by Phineas Pett, a favourite of the chief officers, amount to full £7,600, upon that false ground which before hath been spoken of. A little further on, in dealing with frauds connected with the receipt of stores, Pett is again made the principal example. Quote, when timber and other material come to be received into the stores of the clerk of the cheque, combining closely with the deliverers to increase the quantity of that which is delivered some time to a third part above true measure, which increase is shared between both, and lots are cast upon the robe of the Redeemer. Sir Falk Greville, espying plainly this collusion between parties to the wrong of our great master, sought to prevent this play of fast and loose by adding Phineas Pett to the clerk of the cheque at Chatham as an assistance to take care that there might be no increase of quantities, but all things accounted for in their true proportion in weight and number, as they were indeed without conspiracy. But such was the falsehood of the party, as having found the thief, he ran with him, thrusting himself into the pack 
with the clerk and the deliverer and thus adding himself as an assistant indeed not to plain dealers as sir folk greville meant but to filchers and abusers as pet himself meant which appears upon examination End quote. in a further charge relating to the issue of material for ships building or under repair it is pointed out that the surveyor had taken away the keys of the storehouses from clerk of the check their proper custodian and put them into the hand of pet his chief favourite who could not only take just what he liked but likewise hath power to expend upon the ships or under that pretence whatsoever he thinketh good without contradiction and full scope withal to embezzle what he list he is also mentioned in connection with the construction and decay of the pale which should defend the store-yard from pilferers on the outside towards the thames and with the employment of youths and boys that fill up numbers but work little finally he is charged with wasteful and lavish expense in repairing the ironwork of the anne royal at a cost of eight hundred pounds or more than double the amount necessary for the purpose in the only charge to which pett himself refers namely that of altering his lodgings he is not mentioned by name but it is clear that all the resident officials had added rooms to their houses at the expense and to the detriment of the storehouses which adjoined there seems little doubt that these charges were well founded and that pett was acting in collusion with his very good friends mansell and trevor to defraud the state it is however probable that the other officers were little better and were only restrained by the lack of those opportunities the possession of which they envied pett it is clear from the remarks in the report of the commission of inquiry already quoted and from pett's narrative that the original intention was to rebuild the victory which had been removed from chatham to woolwich in the autumn of sixteen o six for this purpose the official records do not throw any light upon the circumstances in which this intention came to be abandoned and indeed the treasurer's official accounts for sixteen o nine and sixteen ten preserve the fiction that the victory was rebuilt from the story related by phineas it appears that the victory had been given by james to prince henry and that pett was entrusted with the task of rebuilding her because he was one of the prince's retainers he then conceived the idea of constructing a ship larger than any that his predecessors had built and made a model embodying his design which so pleased the lord high admiral that the king was brought to see it and the result that it was decided to build a new great ship on the line suggested by pett this procedure of constructing a model to scale from the design for the approval of the authorities before starting to build the ship is probably the first instance of the adoption of a course that later became customary in all cases where a new ship represented an advance in size or method of construction or embodied features not to be found in her predecessors her keel was not laid until the twentieth of october sixteen o eight nearly a year after the model had been submitted to the king's inspection in the meantime the commission of inquiry had been appointed and the construction had not proceeded far before questions were raised as to the correctness of the design the suitability of the material and the competence of pett as designer and builder on the fifteenth of december baker was examined on the subject before the commission the questions put to him related to the estimated cost of the prince royal and the material used 
the cost of the rebuilding of the Ark Royal, and the experience of Pett as a builder. Baker estimated the probable cost of the prince at £700, nearly twice what he had been paid for the Merona. This estimate, although apparently in excess of one given by Pett, proved very far short of the mark, since the total cost finally came to nearly £20,000, no less than £1,309 being spent on decoration and carving alone. As regards the material, Baker stated that the timber was very badly chosen. It appears that old and unsuitable trees were selected on account of the profit to be made by their larger tops, which seemed to have been one of the many perquisites of the officers. In preparing the timber there was, so Baker said, quote, so much waste as the charge will be well near half so much more as it needed to be to the king. Besides, the ship will be of many years less continuance serviceable than otherwise she would have been if the timber and plank had been well chosen and framed in the wood. End quote. In regard to Pett's competence, quote, being asked also by virtue of his oath whether Phineas Pett be a workman sufficient to be put alone in trust upon a ship of so great charge and burthen, he answereth that he never saw any work of his doing whereby he should so think him sufficient for that work, but rather thinketh the contrary. Further, being demanded what ship he knoweth or have heard the said Pett had built or repaired, he saith he never knew any ship of his building but one of the one hundred and twenty tons or thereabouts which he built by chatham for himself as far as he knoweth and another ship of the burthen of two hundred and twenty three tons he repaired and a pinnace for his majesty which he saith was so done that after he had repaired them they were worse in condition than they were when he took them in hand for that they were so unserviceable that they would bear no sail by which default of his they were returned from the seas into chatham to be new furred to make them bear sail so that with his first repairing and furring of them he doubts not but it will appear by the attempts that his workmanship with stuff was more chargeable than a new ship of their burthen might have been new built for which are enough to persuade any man that he cannot be sufficient to perform the building of so great a ship when he hath performed the reparation of a small ship so ill, as of a good ship he made a bad. Further, being asked what his opinion was concerning the choice of the stuff, he saith it was not chosen for the good of the king, but for their own turns, and that very little of it fit to be put into any ship, and much less into a great ship, because it will be of no continuance, and that he never knew pet to make any frame in the wood either for ship or boat, who cannot do it being never brought up to it and as for his brother peter pett who was appointed purveyor he holdeth him a man most simple for such a purpose and also saith that though they be both unsufficient for the making of such a frame yet the badness of the stuff is not altogether to be imputed to them but to those who dispose of the business according to their own humour five days later bright came up for examination and was required to give answers to seventeen questions apparently the same as those put to baker six of them he did not answer but referred the commission to the answers given to them by baker his replies to the others were generally in corroboration of what baker had said 
but as regards pet's capability he expressed no direct opinion contenting himself with pointing out that quote, the old officers in former times in such great works did place two master shipwrights in the building of one great ship as my father mr bright was joined with mr pett in the building of the elizabeth jonas as also in the building of the bear with mr baker their reason was that two master shipwrights opinions was little enough for the charge so great in scope as she at woolwich will be but now it is carried by the favour of some of the officers to whom it pleaseth them but howsoever it is the charge is great for a young man to do which never made great ship before of that burthen after this the matter remained in abeyance until the end of march when northampton enlisted the service of george weymouth who appears to have possessed a great reputation among his contemporaries for his theoretical knowledge of shipbuilding in sixteen o two weymouth had set out under the auspices of the east india company to attempt the northwest passage in the discovery with another small vessel the godspeed but had been compelled through the mutiny of his crew to abandon the attempt after entering the strait subsequently known as hudson strait in sixteen o five he made a short voyage of discovery in the archangel along the american coast of actual experience in shipbuilding he seems at that time to have had none whatever and a perusal of his chapter on that subject in the manuscript volume the jewel of arts which he presented to james in sixteen o four should not inspire any great confidence in his theoretical knowledge but fortunately other means of judging the extent to which his knowledge was subsequently increased have lately presented themselves the chapter in the jewel of arts consists entirely of criticism together with a few crude drawings not explained in the text these criticisms are not without point as may be seen from the following extracts he says quote, although the form and fashion of these our english ships have always been and yet are accompted to be made by the best proportion and fittest both for service and burden yet if art and diligence were to the full performed in their buildings as they might there should not remain in them so many dangerous impediments as there do at this day which maketh me verily suppose that the one of them if not both is not in such measure in our shipwrights as with all my heart i do wish a little further on in speaking of the discrepancies to be found in ships supposed to be built from the same design he says quote, yet could i never see two ships builded of like proportion by the best and most skilful shipwrights in this realm the chiefest cause of their error is because they trust rather to their judgment than to their art and to their eye than to their scale and compass he then feeling no doubt that his want of technical experience in shipbuilding gave him small right to pose as a critic of the professional builders deprecates their censure in the following words quote, all which defects in building and many other i have with no less careful endeavour than with the often peril and hazard of mine own life diligently applied myself to search and find out even to the uttermost of my skill and understanding and although by mine own experience i can in this point speak as much as most seamen i might say as any having been employed in this service ever since i was able to do any and served therein well near four prenticeships and having in this time borne all the offices belonging to this trade 
even from the lowest unto the highest yet had i rather that any other should have taken upon them the searching and finding out of these impediments and the laying of them open than myself but seeing that no man that ever i heard of hath hitherto as yet undertaken the same the thing being of much importance as it is and the dangers so great though perhaps i shall be hardly censured for the same of the shipwrights whose want of art or diligence i therein accuse yet do i think it the part of every good subject rather to seek to do good to the whole state than to fear the displeasure of any one occupation End quote. in an undated paper a copy of which is preserved in the hylian manuscript he further criticizes the shipwrights to the following effect quote, the shipwrights of england and of christendom build ships only by uncertain traditional precepts and observations and chiefly by the deceiving aim of their eye where for want of skill to work by such proportions as in art is required and is ever certain i have found these defects one no shipwright is able to make two ships alike in proportion nor qualities to build a ship to any desired burden certain nor to propose to himself how much water his ship shall draw until there be trial made thereof two ships yet built go not upright in the sea whereby they often lose the use of their lower tier of ordnance three they are often forced to be furred which is a great charge and weakening to the ships this is for want of skill to work their desired proportions four they labour and beat in the sea more than they may be made to do which causeth often leaks to spring and weakeneth them that they cannot last so long as they might five they go not so near the wind as they might be made to do the wind being the greatest advantage in fight six they draw more water in proportion to their burdens than they might be made to do seven they be made of less burdens than they may be made of in proportion to the length breadth and depth this defect the hollanders have in part mended and are able to carry freight for one-third part less than our merchants eight they cannot bear sail nor steer readily to make the best advantage of the wind for want whereof and of art in proportioning the moulds they sail not so fast as they may be made to do my study these twenty years in the mathematics hath been chiefly directed to the mending of these defects i have during this time applied myself to know the several ways of building and the secrets of the best shipwrights in england and christendom and have likewise observed the several workings of ships in the sea in all the voyages i have been by these helps i have demonstratively gained the science of making of ships perfect in art which of necessity must be made wrought by a differing way from all the shipwrights in the world End quote. he goes on to say that ships built after his plan would cost less and be of more burden and gives reasons why the ships of the low countries carried freight at cheaper rates than english ships this he says was because they were longer in proportion to their breadth broader and longer in the bottom and therefore of less draught and not built so high above water with the result that they required less sail and tackling and could manage with a smaller crew these criticisms of the english shipwrights are no doubt well founded 
but the step from critic to artist is a long one and weymouth never took it nevertheless he was a more competent critic than pett would have us believe an anonymous seventeenth-century manuscript entitled a most excellent brief and easy treatise containing among other matters a most excellent manner for the building of ships exists in the scott collection and this by the kindness of the owner has been placed at the disposal of the editor who after a careful examination has no doubt that it is the work of weymouth written after he had built the ship which pett calls a babel and drowned divil and of which a midship section is given unfortunately except in this one instance the treatise is purely theoretical and throws no light on the problems of the prince royal or the methods of the royal shipwrights but as a theoretical treatise it is far in advance of the jewel of arts and indeed of anything that the english shipwrights of that century produced it is sufficient to explain why weymouth's opinions were accorded so much respect after weymouth's futile visit to woolwich the king seems to have been much perplexed and since there was no independent expert for they had all taken sides he handed the matter over to a committee composed of the lord high admiral and two of the great officers of the state in theory no doubt the selection of the admiral to superintend such an inquiry was the natural course to be followed but in this case he was sitting in judgment on one of his own protégés and could hardly condemn him without indirectly condemning himself and justifying northampton the result in such circumstances and with such a man was a foregone conclusion for the other two members having no professional experience of the matter would naturally follow his direction the technical arguments of baker and stevens would be lost on worcester and suffolk even if nottingham could appreciate them which may be doubted and judging by his writings and allowing for their ignorance of the mathematical side of the questions at issue it is not surprising that weymouth bored them beyond endurance with the result that in the end they found the business in every part and point so excellent northampton's anger at the result was not unnatural and the king found that there was no other course open to him but to hold an inquiry in person this was fixed for the eighth of may and during the first week of that month baker weymouth and their associates took the dimensions of the ship at woolwich and set out their objections in the following document imperfections found upon view of the new work begun at woolwich first her mould is altogether unperfect furred in diverse places she hath too much floor the lower sweep and the upper are too long and the middle sweep too short her depth is too great and her side too upright so that of necessity she must be tender-sided and not able to bear sail her breadth lieth too high and so she will draw too much water and thereby dangerous and unfit for our shoal seas her harpings are too round and lie too low which maketh a cling at the after end of it and makes the bow flare off so much that the work is not only misshapen but the ship dangerous to beat in the sea either at an anchor or under sail her workmanship is very ill done and thereby the ship made weak as first the limber holes are cut so deep in the midship floor timbers that they are less thickness upon the keel than toward the rung head whereas they ought to be thicker and stronger in the midst to bear the weight on ground the futtocks have not scarf enough with the floor timbers but at the lower end of them are diverse short clogs of timber put in which serve to no purpose for strength but to fill up the room 
every mean owner in the thames will assuredly tie the carpenter to allow a great scarf and to have his timber come whole within a foot of his kelson some of the timbers abaft and afore are left so deep by the kelson that the foot whales and outside not being well chenailed together will be great weakness to the ship and the rather for that the rung being cut out of right and old grown timber cannot be brought to a lesser scantling they will break in sunder at the cross grain the provision of timber was not fitting such a chargeable work for that much of the same is overgrown and many pieces of them cross-grained as cut to a roundness out of straight timber which cannot be strong enough to bear a ship on ground of so great weight as this as may be seen both in the ship and yard to show his weakness in art and the imperfection of the mould pet himself after workmen had seen her hauled down his futtocks two foot as soon as the lords were gone and cut off some of the heads of them whereby they have made her more imperfect than she was and put all things out of order that she can hardly be ever amended matthew baker nicholas clay john greaves george weymouth w bright edward stevens richard merriott all these being shipwrights saving captain weymouth have taken their oath and answered before us both upon their conscience to god their duty to the king and their love to their country that this declaration is true and captain weymouth also affirmeth that all which the said shipwrights have declared to be imperfections are so to be accounted but the error of the limber holes he did not look into supposing that no man affecting the name of a workman would err in so gross an absurdity h northampton e zouch john corbett charles parkins robert cotton captain weymouth further saith touching the imperfection of the mould that the hallowing moulds are not good neither before nor abaft for in the hollowing moulds afterward he hath taken away too much timber from the hooks whereby it hath much weakened the ship that when she cometh to lie on ground she will complain in that place which will be a great impediment to the ship and concludeth that she being so deep and her mould so unperfect with these gross errors and absurdities she can never be made strong and fit for service and least of all for our seas edward stevens george weymouth matthew baker w bright nicholas clay john greaves richard merriott h northampton e zouch charles parkins robert cotton john corbett this indictment cannot be lightly set aside baker was the most prominent shipbuilder of that day and bright and merriott or as the name is more usually written merritt were government shipbuilders of long experience while clay greaves and stevens were private builders of considerable standing in their profession unfortunately we have hardly any authentic details of the ship certainly not sufficient to enable us to form any independent opinion upon the question of her design we have from the careful survey taken in sixteen thirty two the following dimensions length of keel a hundred and fifteen feet breadth forty three feet mean breadth thirty six feet depth presumably from the breadth to top of keel eighteen feet depth from the ceiling sixteen foot three inches tonnage old measurement one thousand one hundred and eighty six eighty tonnage new measurement one thousand three hundred and thirty 
and from the arguments during the inquiry it appears that the breadth of the floor was eleven feet eight inches this is all we know of the shape of the hull below water and the pictures of the ship that can be considered authentic representations do not add to this knowledge it would seem that pett had made one or two slight alterations in the accepted rules as followed by his predecessors in the design of the hull for example his floor was slightly wider than the amount allowed by baker in his scheme for plotting the midship section given in the fragments of ancient english shipwrightry according to which it should have worked out at ten feet three inches but as weymouth had as we have already seen been advocating a broader floor a change that subsequently took effect it is difficult to understand why he at any rate should have objected to this to a later age which has seen much greater ships of deeper draught navigate our shoal seas in safety the objection to the deep draught of water may seem somewhat uncalled for but it must be remembered that at that date the king's ships when not on service lay in the medway above upner and an undated manuscript written about sixteen forty shows that difficulty was experienced in finding safe moorings for the sovereign and the prince in this position on the whole it seems probable that the objections on the score of design were not well founded we never hear of the ship having been crank or unseaworthy on this account and there is no such disgraceful episode as that connected with the unicorn built by edward boat in sixteen thirty three to be brought up against her End of section three